This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. Six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. Appreciate a few minutes of your time this morning as we work our way around the sports. Actually, it's going to be very um, football and uh, basketball heavy here this morning. Uh, The axes continue to fall around the NFL. Adam Gaze, of course, got fired hours after the Jets lost their 14th game of the season the other day and yesterday two more coaches fall by the wayside as expected Anthony Lynn gets fired by the Chargers and uh, Jacksonville also parted ways with their coach and uh, Doug Marone not a surprise there either Uh, look Anthony Lynn had to get fired Anthony Lynn cost his team. I mean, it is not often. You know, a lot of times we look at we look at games and, you know, coaches coach, players play, and more often than not, you can't blame the coaches for losses, whether it's in football, whether it's in basketball, baseball, whatever. You know, at the end of the day, if players don't produce, if they don't do the things that they are supposed to do. That is what loses teams' games. Anthony Lynn consistently mismanaged the clock, made silly decisions, made some silly play calls. I mean, there are just you could go on and on and on. And look, by all accounts, Anthony Lynn is one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. So I don't want to jump on Anthony Lynn and say the guy, you know, he's not a bad human being. He's just not a good head coach. He's just not. You know, I mean, it could be uh, that he's just in over his head in the NFL. Uh, You know, because they certainly – have a ton of talent. I mean, Justin Herbert showed that he is probably, in my mind, the offensive rookie of the year in the NFL this year. You know, they have Austin Eckler, great running back. When you have Keenan Allen and Mike Williams as your wide receivers, Joey Bosa on the defensive side, I mean, they've got talent. They should be better than 7-9. and nine. They had so many opportunities to win games. In the last three years, four years, how many games have the Chargers lost in the last minute or two minutes of a game? It's mind-boggling. So this had to happen. Lynn ends up, uh, you know, look, he ends up with a winning record as a Charger coach. He was 33-31. and He was the first black coach in franchise history. You know, so he 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 broke that ground. And look, 
they they got off to a rough start when he was there. They lost their first four games in 2017, but they ended up finishing nine and seven. And then in 2018, that team went 12 and four. Got to the playoffs, won their first game in the wild card route, and lost to New England in the divisional playoffs. But that was a very good team. And so the expectation going forward was that they were going to repeat that. Look, they had Phillip Rivers, who was a, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and stunk in 2019. And now in, 20, in 2020, you get a potential franchise quarterback in Herbert who, and look, I'll give Anthony Lynn credit for this. He just gave the kid the ball and said, here you go. And Herbert was very complimentary of Anthony Lynn yesterday after the news came out and said, look, you know, this is a guy that taught me a lot. He taught me how to, to take command of a huddle. And you know, so you, you got to give Lynn credit for that. But at the end of the day, the number of mistakes that he made as a head coach doomed him. And the Charger fans would have liked to have seen this happen weeks ago. You know, I mean, you just because you can't continue to watch this stuff and, and not, you know, not kind of lose your mind. So it's going to be a very attractive job. It's in a major market. It's in a warm weather climate. Um, it, they have that brand new stadium in Los Angeles. You know, again, look, I was a Charger fan from the time I was a little kid up until you know, a couple of years ago when they decided to extort the city of San Diego. And I just said, I'm not, I can't in good conscience root for a team that tries to blackmail or extort a major metropolitan area. And that's what the Spanos family did. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, they're dead to me. You know, they're so dead to me. I, my, my wife, a number of years ago, bought me a beautiful, uh, uh, at the time, San Diego Chargers parka, you know, and it was great. I gave it away to, uh, I just gave it away. I was like, I'm not wearing, I'm not, I'm not wearing this ever again. You know, my Chargers, all my Chargers paraphernalia gone. Um, I, you know, and there's a lot of, I'm sure a lot of old San Diego Charger fans that are having a hard time wrapping their heads around it, but this was a move that had to happen. But now the first name that you hear is a potential replacement for Anthony Lynn, Jason Garrett, current offensive coordinator of the New York Giants. How, how did that work out for the Giants? Former head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. How did that work out for them? And you're going to replace Anthony Lynn with a guy like Jason Garrett who has a history of probably making as many head-scratching moves as Anthony Lynn did in his career with the Chargers. If the Chargers hire Jason Garrett, they have not helped themselves. They have made their situation worse. I mean, good Lord Almighty. That can't, <laughs> that can't happen. You know, and, and, you know, it just, I hope that there are going to be other candidates out there other than Jason Garrett. Please, God. You know, and, and again, I don't root for this team anymore, but you can't replace a bumbling coach, if that's probably the best way to put it. You cannot replace Anthony Lynn 
with Jason Garrett. You just can't. That would be idiotic. So I hope for Charger fans' sake that the Spanos family is smarter than that. Time will tell. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, and look, uh, their GM has one year left on his contract. I think this is going to be his third head coach. This has to work. Whoever he brings in with the talent they have on this team, it has to work. Or they're going to be looking for a new GM next year, too, because you're going to be wondering, does this guy know what the hell he's doing? So, you know, uh, Tom Telesco as as the GM in his time in San Diego slash Los Angeles is 60 and 68. So this isn't just necessarily a uh, a head coach problem. This could be a case of, you know, maybe we have a GM that doesn't have a good handle on things. Now, I'll give Telesco this. He has drafted well. When, you know, there's something to be said for that. Hell, if if Bill Belichick drafted half as well as the Chargers had over the years, maybe the Patriots wouldn't be in the mess that they were in this year. Just saying. So, stay tuned. But, boy, I hope for Charger fans' sake it is not Jason Garrett that they end up with as their head coach. Oh, my goodness. I really hope. So, stay tuned. Um, and then the Jaguars, as expected, let go of their head coach. And <laughs> this was so funny because when Marone found out that he might be getting replaced by none other than Urban Meyer, he called up the owner, Shad Khan, and said, uh, hey, this is the rumors I'm hearing. And Shad Khan said, well, yeah, that's news to me. <laughs> and uh, but he said, but we'll talk on Monday. Oh, yeah. Well, they talked, and Marone is out of a job. Now, what is interesting is Khan, uh, Shad Khan has said that he is going to be more involved. He has to hire a new GM as well as a new head coach. He said he plans to do it both about the same time, and they are going to change the reporting lines, and those two guys are going to re- be reporting directly to him as opposed to reporting directly to the president of the team, they are going to report directly to the owner. He's going to be more involved. Now that could work out. Well, it may not, you know, and ask the Washington football team, how it worked out with, uh, uh, Daniel Snyder being involved in so many personnel decisions, but be that as it may, when you own the team, that is your right. Marone went 25 and 44. Look, this is a team that just a few years ago was a game away from getting to the Super Bowl. But then after that, it's been a nightmare. So Dave Caldwell got fired in November. Marone kept his job, but now we see where they're going to go. Urban Meyer is the name that everybody's talking about. And it's interesting in this interview yesterday when the decision was made, Khan said that, look, I've known Urban you know, for a long time. He said, but we have not spoken to anyone about this job or obviously interviewed him. He said, I just made the decision this morning, and I'll leave it at that. So where did the rumors about Urban Meyer come from? Did Urban Meyer, has Urban Meyer actually been talking to Shad Khan about this job? Or was the 
the news about Urban Meyer just something that the media made up? Because I'm, I'm more likely to believe that. And if you don't think the media makes stuff up just to have things to write about, you're naive. They'll take something that is, hey, that's a great idea. Let's let's float that out there. And they will run with it. So it would not shock me if it's something the media just made up. Now, would Urban Meyer be the right guy? I don't know. You know, there is always that risk of bringing a guy from college into the pros. A lot of times it does not work. I would say more often than not, it does not work. Remember how great uh, Chip Kelly was at Oregon? Came into the NFL, he was a bust. And you can go on and on. You know, Steve Spurrier was not a great NFL coach. Great college coach, not a great NFL coach. You know, you can go down the list. There's a lot of guys. You know, Nick Saban, much better college coach. You know, so if Urban Meyer is their choice... And, you know, the, the media has gone as far as saying Urban Meyer is already putting together a staff. That, that was that was coming out uh, before Maroney even got fired, before their, before their last couple of games. And, you know, look, this wasn't all Marone's fault. They didn't have – they did not have a lot of talent. And their number one need is going to be addressed in this draft unless they completely screw that up. I mean, they have to draft Joey Lawrence. They need a franchise quarterback. He has to be signing number one. So whoever they hire as a coach has to be somebody they feel that can maximize Joey Lawrence's talents because there's no question that that is who they'll be drafting. And if they don't, you know, they're idiots. So that was firing number two. Now, firing number three has not happened. Or actually, it did. That was Adam Gaze, actually. So that was the third firing. There are people that want Doug Peterson, the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, lynched. That may be a little extreme, but, you know, there are people that are calling for Doug Peterson's head. Frankly, I'm kind of on the, in that camp that something needs to be done. Um, Joe Judge, the head coach of the New York Giants, came out yesterday. And look, we, we have to do we have to keep this in perspective that the Giants were a team that was directly affected by Peterson's decision to essentially tank that game. You know, and Joe Judge came out yesterday and said to, to disrespect the effort that everyone put forward to make this season a success. Uh, to disrespect the game by going out there and not competing for 60 minutes and doing everything you can to help those players win, we will never do that as long as I'm head coach of the New York Giants. You know, and Peterson can keep saying, yes, I was coaching to win. You know, uh, you know, he, he can say whatever he wants. That's baloney. Dan Shaughnessy had a great column in the Boston Globe this morning. And look, a lot of Dan Shaughnessy is a very polarizing figure. And there were a lot of times I think Dan Shaughnessy is, you know, a little, a little wacko and a little out of bounds, but he's not here. The Eagles should be punished. And that's essentially what he said. You know, he said, and, and he calls it Philadelphia's tank job. And look, you can't deny what they did. Doug Peterson can say it every, everything he wants. Mike DeMauro, my buddy from the New London Day here in the state of Connecticut, 
had a great tweet this morning. He said, only in the NFL can deflated footballs translate into the firing squad at dawn, but blatant tanking be ignored. He is 100% correct. 100%. You know, you could say whatever you want about Deflategate, okay? Um, There's been all kinds of scientific studies that say a lot of it was due to atmospheric conditions, yada, 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 whatever, okay? Say whatever you want. At the end of the day, the Patriots won that game by a million points. Those footballs made no difference whatsoever. But be that as it may, look what happened to the Patriots. Good Lord. I mean, they got hammered. And yet, the NFL has been very, very quiet about this. And, you know, so what did the Eagles do? They improved their draft position from ninth to sixth by tanking that game. You know, you can you can debate up and down as much as you want as to how big of a deal that is. You know, even Shaughnessy says, you know what, well, look, you could maybe buy this. You could maybe say, ah, you know, all right, if what the Eagles were doing was, ba- was tanking a game so they could go from the second pick to the number one pick to get a diff- a potential difference maker in Joey Lawrence. You could also say, well, it's all right because the game didn't mean anything. You know, if the game was against two teams that didn't mean anything, you could say, all right, even though you still shouldn't. But at the end of the day, this game meant a lot to the New York Giants. And it was something the Eagles had an obligation to play this game. And, and Shaughnessy says, look, he says, look, nobody feels sorry for the Giants, you know, here in New England, you know. But he said, think about this. What if it happened to you? What if it was the Patriots? Because, you know, and the Jets were playing the Dolphins. And, it, and the Patriots needed the Jets to beat the Dolphins. But the Jets decided that they were going to sit everybody and just let the Dolphins win in a walkover, and the Patriots don't make the playoffs. How do you think that would go over? Now, he gave a great example. And I know this was another era, and you could say, okay, Boomer, but in baseball, 1967, the Red Sox impossible dream team that ended up going up you know, to the World Series playing against the St. Louis Cardinals. In order to get into the playoffs, to, to at least clinch a tie for the American League pennant, the Red Sox beat the Twins. They needed the Angels to beat the Tigers for them to win the division title outright and get to the World Series. Angels were in sixth place. They had nothing to play for. But the Angels tried. The The Angels manager used his best relievers in, late in the game. He had three pitchers warming up in the bullpen to try to protect a two-run lead. And they beat the Tigers on the last game of the season, giving the Red Sox the title and getting them to the World Series. The Angels were in sixth place, had zero to play for. You know, and and Shaughnessy pointed out another one. Go back to earlier or to last week. J.J. Watt lost his mind on his teammates of the Houston Texans. They were awful. They were 4-11. and 11. And he came out and blasted his teammates and said, there are a lot of people that watch us and invest their time and their money in buying our jerseys. They care. 
They care every single week. We're in week 16 and we're 4-11, and 11, and there are fans that show up and they care about this. You can't care enough to go out there and try your hardest. You shouldn't be here. And Dan Shaughnessy finishes it up, and he says, nor should you be the owner or head coach of an NFL team. He is absolutely right. And he said Goodell needs to, to, uh, to punish the Eagles or forever shut up about the integrity of the game because they wanted to use the integrity of the game as their excuse for punishing the Patriots for you know a pound or two of pressure being low in a football. There is nothing more integral to the game than putting your best players on the field so that you give a representative effort. There is nothing. There is nothing more important than that. And by the way, Jalen Hurts was pissed about being benched, which was I, w- I was really happy to hear that he was very frustrated about that. Good. You ought to be. You ought to be. So uh, Doug Peterson's not going to get fired. But he should. But I have a feeling that the owner was involved in this. That's why Peterson's not going to get fired. Jeffrey Loria was involved in this as well. I'm sure they had a conversation. He said, hey, we could use those 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 you know few slots in the draft. Feel free, you know, to tank. And they they had a lot of healthy scratches, by the way, in this game. And then you play your third string quarterback. So the owner was involved. That's why the NFL has to find the Eagles. Has to. Now, will they take away that number one draft pick? It would be a ballsy move, but it would be the right move. And it would be one of those moves that forever will tell any NFL team, play your best players. There will be no tanking in the NFL. Lose a first-round draft pick? That'll get your attention in a big old hurry, especially if it's the number six pick overall. You know, maybe what you do is you don't take away the first-round pick if you want to be a, a semi-nice guy, but you tell, you know what, we're gonna, you can keep your first-round draft pick, but it's going to be the last pick in the first round. You know, th- but they've got to do something. I, you know, I, I, I am not a fan of Roger Goodell, and I don't have confidence that he will, but he damn sure needs to. Uh, one other quick NFL note, and uh, this came out as a great story. And I remember seeing this the other day in the Seattle game when they were playing the 49ers, and, and they only had to you know kneel down to run the clock out. And for some reason, Russell Wilson drops back to pass, and he throws the ball to David Moore. And they they you know they cut to Pete Carroll on the sidelines, and Carroll's looking like, what the hell are you doing? Come to find out that Russell Wilson changed the call in the huddle to get a catch to David Moore because uh, that was his 35th of the season, and it triggered a $100,000 bonus in his contract. So he did that in the huddle. He said, you're going to get it here uh, to make sure that he got his money. Good for him. And look, this is a guy that, and I had to laugh when I read the story. He said, you know, David Moore, the receiver who caught that pass, was only making $825,000 a year. Only, only. God, I'd love to be only making $825,000 a year. But I, I get the point. You know, in the grand scheme of things with other guys that uh, uh, what they're making around the league, uh, he gets a $100,000 bonus. So that's essentially about a, uh, you know, a 12% raise by getting that bonus. 
So uh, a good move uh, by Russell Wilson to do that. There were a couple other situations like that uh, this past weekend. Drew Brees did it. Emmanuel Sanders uh, got a $500,000 bonus this weekend. He uh, ended up with nine catches. He needed to get, uh, I think he needed to catch seven or eight balls uh, to get 60 which would give him that $500,000 bonus. And Drew Brees came flat out and said that he was trying to feed him the ball. He said he's just trying to feed him. So that was cool. Uh, and same thing in Tampa. One of the reasons why Antonio Brown ended up with as much as he did is Tom Brady threw to him 14 times. And that's because he needed nine catches to reach 45 to trigger a $250,000 bonus for him. Brady made sure that he got it. So, you know what? Good for him. I mean, that's I mean that's kind of a nice thing, I guess. Especially the thing in Seattle with Russell Wilson. I mean, all he had to do was kneel down and and uh, he, by the way, he said his quarterback's coach was in on it, so somebody else, at least on the coaching staff, knew about it. But that was kind of cool. It's uh, thirty-one minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to tell you uh, we're going to have a conversation, a story in the New York Times this morning about the winner of the college football season. It made me laugh out loud this morning. Back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. 33 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call. So I, uh, you know, one of the first things I do every morning is I open up the Hartford Current uh, to, you know, check out what's going on in the world, read the sports, et cetera, et cetera. I almost spit out my coffee when I get to the sports page. And here is the headline that was in the sports page this morning. This is a commentary. College football champ isn't in title game. It's in stores, stores as in stores, Connecticut. And it was written by a guy by the name of Kirk Streeter, or Kurt Streeter, excuse me, from the New York Times. New York Times, the bastion of journalism in the United States, or so they want you to believe. Um, and it starts off with uh, who will be the college football's next national champion, Alabama or Ohio State. The correct answer should be neither. The team we should be cheering won't be on the field. The real champion, the University of Connecticut, which was the first football bowl subdivision team to squarely face the coronavirus and decide against playing a single snap during the raging pandemic. So... The premise here is that the University of Connecticut was courageous. That they, more than anybody else, stood up and said, no, we are going to protect our players. We are going to do the right thing and not play. So they did that. And then a bunch of other teams and leagues across the country you know, all of a sudden said, you know what? Yeah, you know, that's the right thing. And so the Pac-10, the big, or Pac-12, the Big Ten, you know, the uh, Mid-American Conference, yada, yada, yada. Everybody decides they're not going to play. The next thing you know, everybody starts realizing how much money they're going to lose. And so now everybody's going to play. Even to leagues that did not resume full play, uh, teams were playing non-conference games just so that they could play some football. But UConn, mm, they were courageous. They decided they knew 
the right thing to do, and that was not to play. And UConn was one of only three teams in the uh, the uh, out of the 130 FBS teams. Only three teams did not play a game this year: UConn, and then Old Dominion and New Mexico State. And they interviewed Randy Edsel, the head coach at UConn, last week. And, you know, Randy says it was simply the right thing to do. I've never questioned the decision we made, not once. You know, and he said, look, we talked to the players. And he said, uh, you know, he said, and one of the players, you know, said, look, the coach left it up to us. He said, hey, this is your team. You guys are the ones playing. And the answer, the players all said, done. We're not going to play. And Edsel said, I normally don't sleep well at night during a season, but I slept very, very well all year. And he says, you know, putting the welfare players and community first gives you peace of mind. All right. That all sounds great, right? And, I, you know, I guess maybe I'm a cynic. Well, no, I am a cynic. Folks, the University of Connecticut did not play football this year because they were losing a ton of money and will continue to lose a ton of money. Even if the University of Connecticut had played the season this year, they probably weren't going to make a bowl game. And I say probably. Why? Because we had teams making bowl games this year with three and seven records, which made an absolute joke out of the whole you know bowl thing. Teams that wouldn't get a sniff of a bowl with records were suddenly getting into a bowl just because they were desperate for teams to play because everybody was opting out at the end of the season. But UConn didn't play because they were trying to be noble or courageous or be a leader. and They did it because they were losing their shirts. They've won six games in the last three years. They haven't been to a bowl game since 2015. The budget deficit was $13 million in 2019. And you want me to believe that this was all because of the doing the right thing? Please. And and I'll look, I'll give Kurt Streeter credit. At least in his story, he did admit that UConn's decision was made a little bit easier because of all those facts. You know, and and look, Randy Etzel's, you know, a good guy. You know, and and he, and you know, and he said, "Look, I didn't make this decision on my own, you know, and and but he said that, you know, that protecting my players, you know, and the community was all that mattered. What mattered was is that because you didn't have to travel. You didn't have to pay to rent out Rensselaer Field. All these, you, you didn't lose as much money this year. And by the way, some of the losses are on paper anyway because, you know, they get uh, the, the football team gets charged for the scholarships. You know, so, that's the, you know, the amount of money you give out in scholarships, that tuition, those tuition dollars and room and board dollars, those are all included in part of your, your budget. It's, 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 it's kind of silly. It's stupid it's stupid math but that's the way it works in college you know i mean i've worked in division one college athletics for a number of years and that's just it's just dumb math but be that as it may come on you know did uconn do the right thing by not playing yes should other teams have followed that and not played i believe yes i believe 
the right thing to do would have been to not play. Look at the farce that we had and how many games got postponed. And, you know, we got a team that has reached the national championship game that played six regular season games. You know, I mean, it's just silly. But they decided to play, and, you know, so you get what you what you asked for. But UConn did make the right decision. But come on, let's not try to make them out uh, to be Gandhi or something like that, you know, or, or Dr. Jonas Salk. I mean, it, it's not like they made some great sacrifice for science. They made the sacrifice because, yeah, it was the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, I guarantee you, the administration in the athletic department and the university as a whole looked at this and said, you want to play? That's awesome. That's, it's like It was like Christmas in August for the UConn administration when they realized they weren't going to have to worry about you know their football team and have all the travel and expenses involved. So, come on. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. Don't insult my intelligence. You know, so, and I almost, when I read this, I almost wondered if this was something that the, uh, the Office of Athletic Communications at the University of Connecticut had dreamed up. And don't, uh, look, I was a college SID for a long time. I'm not, I am not going after SIDs. They are some of my favorite people. Matter of fact, one of my former assistants, Bill Peterson, uh, works with the, is the head uh, SID for the uh, hockey team, men's hockey team at UConn. So I'm not going after, you know, SIDs. All I'm saying is this is a thing. This is a PR piece. You know, maybe it was the, maybe it was the main PR office at UConn that drummed this up and floated this idea to Kurt Streeter because this is just, it's funny. It really is. It's laughable. Come on. The problem is, is that there's going to be a lot of people going to see this. Yeah, yeah, there's that. That's right. UConn, they're on this. I mean, come on. If UConn had a team that was going to be good enough to make a college bowl team, a bowl game, if this was a team that last year had gone seven and three, they were going to play football this year. They were going to play football this year but it's really easy to make a decision when you've won six games in three years and and look i please don't get me wrong if you're a uconn fan and you're listening to this 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 broadcast i am not telling i'm not trying to tell you that i hate uconn i'm just telling you that we need to be realistic about this and i agree that they shouldn't have played but i also know better that it wasn't just because of that so, uh, the bastion of journalism, the New York Times strikes again. And I got to be careful with that, too, because I don't want to sound I don't want to sound like Donald Trump and say it's fake news. But it's twisted news. You know, it's it's slanted news in my in my opinion. It's just, you know, this is uh, taken out of context news. How about that? Uh, AP top 25 men's basketball released yesterday. No surprise here. Uh, Gonzaga and Baylor remain 1-2 in the poll. Gonzaga gets 63 of the 64 first-place votes. Uh, Baylor got the other one. Villanova at, is at 3. Uh, Texas 4th. Texas with a big jump. They move up from 8th to 4th. 
Iowa jumps up from 10th to 5th. Uh, Kansas, which got absolutely whacked by Texas this week, drops uh, from 3rd down to 6th. Creighton, uh, a team that UConn lost to in overtime, a team that UConn could have won uh, if they made a couple of free throws, uh, moves up to 7th uh, from 11th. Wisconsin, Tennessee, and Michigan round out your top 10. UConn actually got some votes. They're a long way from being ranked, but they did actually get some votes in the poll. Uh, so that's where we're at as far as the men's poll. The women's poll, again, uh, no change at the top. Stanford, Louisville, North Carolina State, and UConn. Um, technically, I guess there was a little bit of a change. North Carolina State and UConn are actually tied in the poll for third place. North Carolina State was a a point ahead of UConn last week, but uh, they are tied for third. South Carolina fifth, Baylor sixth. Then it's Arizona, Texas A&M, UCLA, and Kentucky, your top ten. Oregon out of the top ten uh, after losing to UCLA uh, by two points. Oregon is uh, out for the first time in a long time. And, you know, of course, we know how good Oregon was last year. They had been in the top 10 for 64 straight weeks. And uh, they now are at number 11. Uh, that was the fourth active longest streak, by the way, behind UConn, Baylor, and Louisville. UConn's been in the top 10 of every poll since t- March of 2005. <laughs> 2005. Uh, Baylor is uh, since 2014, and Louisville uh, started its run uh, in uh, 2017. So uh, Oregon's is out. They are now number 11. So that is where we're at with the top 25 in both the men and the women. Uh, UConn men back in action. We'll talk about that and a few other things when we come back. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. By the way, if you missed part of the show this morning, you can find it on our podcast. We are on uh, Apple Podcasts. We are on Amazon Music. Uh, we are uh, everywhere. We're on Spotify. Uh, so if you are interested in uh, listening to the show, if you missed part of it this morning, you can find us uh, at your favorite podcast location. Uh, the UConn men's basketball team begins a three-game road swing tonight. Uh, they will play at Marquette, a team they have not played since uh, 2013. Uh, UConn, of course, four and one, one and one in the Big East. Marquette has been very busy in the Big East so far. They are six and five overall, two and three in conference play. Um, they will have a bit of a size advantage, does Marquette uh, in this one? They are uh, definitely much bigger up front uh, as well as at the guard position. So UConn is going to have to use its uh, uh, its quickness tonight. They are going to need uh, James Booknight and Jalen Gaffney and R.J. Cole, Tyrese Martin get to get to the basket. Um, uh, UConn uh, offense got some good balance last time out. Uh, Tyrese Martin had 22, Booknight with 20. Uh, but they're going to need these guys to shoot uh, the three tonight. Uh, they shot it pretty well against DePaul, but they are going to need to spread the floor out tonight. They're going to have to stretch that Mar- uh, Marquette defense to uh, open up some lanes to the basket for some of their quicker guys. Uh, Marquette offense, they're averaging almost 75 points a game. Uh, defensively, they're eh, middle of the pack. Uh, so this should be a game that UConn can win. Uh, one thing, you know, and, and uh, Damamori and Hartford Current pointed this out this morning, UConn hasn't been in the road in a while. They've been playing at home. 
so they're going to have to kind of get used to the uh, getting back on the road kind of thing. And it, obviously in this uh, pandemic society that we live in now, it's a little bit different with the mass and, you know, how you're going to do your meals and how you're going to do your meetings. Everything's a little bit different. So, But this is a winnable game for the Huskies tonight. And then they will play Saturday at Butler, and then they will be Monday at DePaul. So a very important three-game swing uh, for the UConn Huskies starting tonight. The UConn women will play tomorrow. Um, and uh, huge game, or is it Thursday? I think it's your Thursday. Huge game for the UConn Husky women this week. Um, they haven't really been tested so far this season. We are going to find out what the UConn women are made of uh, this week. They have to play against Baylor. It's at it's Thursday, and it is at Baylor. And so, you know, UConn has had a couple other games against top-ranked opponents that were supposed to happen, but because of the coronavirus, like they had games against Louisville and Mississippi State canceled. Uh, so this is going to be a big test for the UConn women. And uh, Gino Auriemma, very concerned about how poorly UConn women have been shooting the basketball. And he said he thinks it's the worst shooting team he's had since he's been there. And, you know, Gino at times is known to, uh, to use hyperbole. This is one case where he may not be wrong. There was a story in the Hartford Current over the weekend. Um, and when you look at the numbers, yeah, it is, uh, it's right up there bad. Now, the difference is, is you know, it's a smaller number of games um, but you know, that's, this is a case where Gino might not be wrong. He may not be wrong. So we shall see, but a big game coming up for the UConn women on Thursday. Uh, the NCAA officially announced that the men's basketball tournament is going to be held in Indiana this year. Now the original plan was that it was going to be, uh, uh, just in Indianapolis was the first thing we heard. Now it's going to be in the entire state. So rather than having it at uh, 13 different sites across the country, they're going to move it strictly within the city or the state of Indiana. So there'll be games at Lucas oil stadium, uh, which of course, where the uh, Colts play a uh, banker's life field house, which is where the Indiana Pacers play. They will also use um, Hinkle field house, which is where Butler plays. Um, and uh, Indiana Farmers Coliseum, which is where IUPUI plays. Uh, and they are just a short drive from uh, downtown Indianapolis. And uh, then, of course, Mackey Arena at Purdue and Assembly Hall at Indiana are about an hour away from Indianapolis. So those are all going to be used to host games. So they're not going to try to do it all in like one or two arenas. They're going to spread it out to five or six different ones around the state of Indiana, all of which will be big enough to handle big crowds. Now, we don't know what kind of crowds are even going to be allowed at this point. You know, as of right now, um, everything is still scheduled to start uh, March 14th with Selection Sunday, and the the title game is supposed to be on April the 3rd. Um, but we don't know whether there will be fans. You know, and I, a lot of that's going to depend on whether they're where the vaccine uh, is at. We uh, look, we're moving a lot slower with the vaccines than they had expected. So, you know, I think there will be fans. It's just probably going to be uh, much smaller. So we shall see uh, how that works out. Uh, NBA last night, 
the Boston Celtics with a win over the Toronto Raptors. You look at the final score, and the Celtics win it by 12, uh, 126 to 114. It wasn't that close. Um, Celtics dominated this game. They were actually up by, I think, 23 or 24 at one point. Celtics had 100 points before the third quarter was over. Uh, They just um, uh, dominated this game. Uh, Jason Tatum throws in 40. And shot, you know, a lot of times you throw in 40 and you don't shoot particularly well. He was 11 for 19 from the field, 5 of 8 from 3, and perfect from the line, 13 for 13 at the free throw line. Uh, So huge game for him. Jalen Brown had 19. Uh, Peyton Pritchard, how about this, plays 32 minutes off the bench and scores 23 points on 8 of 13 shooting. Also had 8 assists, couple of rebounds. Uh, (laughs) That opened some eyes. Uh, so the Celtics had a chance to get deep into their bench last night. Uh, big win for them. Uh, and uh, they will finish their four-game road trip Wednesday night uh, at Miami. Uh, be their first meeting against uh, the Heat since uh, they eliminated the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. Uh, the NBA has also informed teams uh, that players on the active roster are going to have to wear masks while they are in the bench area until they enter games. Um, this, uh, this happened yesterday, uh, and it was happened the same day that uh, we found out that Kevin Durant is going to have to miss uh, the next week. He was out for uh, today's game against Utah because of the protocols dealing with the coronavirus. Uh, so the new rules are going to be players who are dressed for games, have to wear a mask till they enter. All players and coaches have to wear the mask when outside the the bench area if they are around other players and coaches. Um, so and and then all players have to report the names of any private trainer, therapist, chiropractor, yada 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 that they work work with outside of the team facility. So the NBA is cracking down. They're trying to make sure uh, this thing doesn't uh, you know get too crazy. Uh, one other quick note before we get out of here: the U.S. Uh, World Junior Team reached the championship game. They beat Finland yesterday 4-3. to three. So they will take on Canada, which blanked Russia earlier in the day 5 nothing. So the gold medal game will be tonight. Uh, Finland will face Russia for the bronze, and then the United States and Canada uh, will play for the uh, gold medal. The U.S. has uh, not won the gold at the World Juniors since uh, 2017. So uh, uh, after losing their opening game to Russia 5-3, nice bounce back. Goaltending play has been really, really good for the United States uh, in this tournament. That's going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. We leave you this morning with some music uh, from Clint Black. And uh, it's called Killing Time. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.